Are you interested in joining a community of policy influencers working toward positive change? Consider Seton Hall University's results-driven executive graduate programs in international affairs. You can customize your studies through research in regional areas and specializations, including conflict management, global health security, and more. As a graduate candidate, you can leverage a collaborative and dynamic professional platform that includes one-on-one faculty mentorship, career workshops, international seminars, and discussions with global leaders on campus, at the UN headquarters in New York, and in Washington, D.C. The program is flexible. Study full-time or part-time, online or at the New Jersey campus just 14 miles from New York City. To learn more or sign up for a webinar, click the link in our episode description. Hi, I'm Casey Candela. And I am Damilola Banjo. Welcome to Unscripted. On today's episode, we discuss how France and its allies are maintaining sanctions against Russia while also managing high food prices. We talk with French ambassador Nicolas de Rivière about Security Council reform and the complexity of trying to restrict the veto power of the P5. We are also joined by Ashish Pradhan, the crisis group's senior UN analyst. This is Unscripted, a podcast taking you inside the United Nations and beyond the scripted debates to the people at the heart of it all, the diplomats. France heads the Security Council in the same month as the annual General Assembly debate with world leaders, or UNGA. In addition, the Council still has a full program of work. Here's a quick rundown. On September 27th, there will be a debate on the situation of women and girls in Afghanistan under the Taliban, as well as a meeting on Resolution 2635 on the inspection of vessels for arms smuggling leaving Libya. On September 22nd, during the General Assembly High-Level Week, France's Foreign Minister Catherine Colonna is expected to chair a Ministerial Council meeting on Ukraine. That country will also be the focus of two other council sessions. One will focus on the Russian-run filtration camps in Ukraine, and the second on the status of the Zaporizhia nuclear plants. At press time, France is not confirming whether President Emmanuel Macron will come for the UNGA. Here is the ambassador. As of September 1st, France will chair the Security Council for the entire month. Uh, It's an important responsibility at the time when the UN General Assembly uh, will meet, bringing together head of states and government and many ministers and especially when the international community is facing unprecedented challenges. These two major segments will be a good occasion for France to reaffirm its driving commitment to multilateralism. During its presidency, France will host on September 22nd a ministerial meeting of the Security Council chaired by Foreign Minister Catherine Colonna, On Ukraine, this meeting will deal, among others, with the fights against impunity. So those responsible for abuses and war crimes are held accountable. 
In terms of working method, France uh, intend to keep a balance between open and uh, meetings and uh, close consultation. We will uphold our commitments on the women, peace and security agenda, and we will invite the women uh, as briefers at many of the briefings. And we will focus the Afghanistan meeting on the situation of women. Uh, there will be also uh, interaction with the press and with the NGO community as a part of uh, a commitment to have an open and transparent conduct of our work. We will have a few other issues, uh, a meeting on PKOs on September 6, issues related to the Middle East, uh, the regular ones, Syria, Yemen, Libya, Palestine, peace and security in Africa, the DRC, Somalia, Sudan, South Sudan. And lastly, uh, during the month of September, France will make sure the Council renew two mandates, uh, UNITAD on Iraq, and second, the authorization to intercept vessels off Libyan coasts, vessels suspected of migrant smuggling and human trafficking. So it's a technical rollover. Food, oil, and gas prices are sliding downward globally, but developing countries are still in a tight spot. Brent, a type of crude oil from the North Sea, is a common benchmark for that commodity's price. Brent prices have dropped from $122 per barrel in June to $100 in August. Even the Food and Agricultural Organization's food price index has decreased for five consecutive months. So we asked Ambassador de Rivière, does he think that Western sanctions on Russia have contributed to the price hikes that started in March? This crisis, this war on Ukraine, is of course a major game changer. And France, Europe, and many countries condemn this aggression and will stand by Ukraine and we want to help Ukraine. And the sanctions we decided in the European Union, I think there have been already six or seventh round of sanctions, are just supposed to do this. So, of course, sanctions have an effect on the ground. I want to make it very clear. There are no European or U.S. sanctions on food, on fertilizers, on uh, agricultures, on, on grains. So there are no sanctions. But it's obvious that uh, we need to address the global food security crisis. We supported very strongly the effort by the Secretary General to find a way, together with Turkey, to uh, make sure that the grains from uh, Ukraine and from uh, Russia can be exported and evacuated from the Black Sea. So it works, which is good. But we need to strike the right balance between uh, keeping a strong pressure on Russia to stop this aggression and uh, making sure that our policies do not impact the global south. If we want to be honest, I think there would not be a food crisis if Russia would not have decided to start a war, an unjustified and illegal war against Ukraine. I want to remind you that on March 16, the International Court of Justice said very clearly that this war is illegal and that Russia should go home. Ashish Pradhan says the global food insecurity problem is due to a combination of factors, including sanctions on Russia. Certainly, I think this is one of the most challenging questions of, of our current moment, right? You know, in terms of the, the global impact that this war has had, I think, whether in Lagos or in New York you know, or anywhere in between, uh, there's been a, a clear visible impact for, I think, everyone. 
And I think you know, ascribing this to one particular factor might be a little bit unwise. You know, so to say that this is just because of what Russia has hasn't done in terms of its exports, or it's just because of uh, sanctions imposed on Russia, or it's just because of you know one particular factor, I think might be missing the whole picture. In reality, I believe it might be a combination of those things, also a delayed impact of the supply chain issues that we've seen with the more recent phases of the COVID-19 pandemic. And you know, I think it's uh, because of a multitude of these factors, you know, we find ourselves in a, in a place where it's almost as if, uh, you know, regardless of what the exact origins of these problems might be, you know, finding a way out, you know, especially giving this enough airtime, making sure that there's adequate, even just diplomatic bandwidth to ensure that there's enough attention being paid to addressing these issues, correcting the impact that this has on the most vulnerable countries and populations should be a priority. Certainly Crisis Group, and I know some other organizations as well, you know, have been working on looking at how these impacts uh, you know, on food, fuel, and commodity prices can, uh, in fact, push countries that are already uh, at a vulnerable stage in terms of their domestic stability towards more invulnerability, towards more instability. And how can that be, how can there be action taken early in anticipation of that to keep these countries from becoming the next Sri Lanka, for instance, or becoming the next Lebanon? So I think that's where I hope, you know, energies and focus will be uh, put at the General Assembly High Level Week as well. French President Emmanuel Macron recently visited West and Central Africa, where the impact on Russia's war on Ukraine and the reactions of the international communities have been quite visible. The French government said the visit was meant to renew the country's sphere of influence in the subregions. In the ambassador's words, it was an assurance of France's commitment to helping very poor countries in both regions. No, I think France will remain very much engaged in this region. The Security Council visited Mali and Niger last fall. The contrast between the two situations was obvious, and it was a good experience for Council members. And I think it was a good illustration that good governance and leaders uh, mandated by their people with a clear platform on reform, the right thing to do in these very poor countries. So we will continue to support uh, all countries of the Sahel region, including Mali. But to be honest, it takes two to tango. And uh, we want these countries to cooperate as well with the UN and with main stakeholders in this organization. Pradhan says Macron's visit is part of a trend. The council's veto-bearing P5 members, Britain, China, France, Russia, and the U.S., are competing for influence in the regions. He says Western governments visiting West and Central Africa should work to counter perceptions that their goals are motivated by modern-day colonialism. I think certainly, uh, you know, obviously this isn't President Macron's first visit to the continent, certainly not to West Africa or even Central Africa, right? You know, I, I would imagine, you know, the way that he might envision it and his team might have envisioned it is to approach this from more of an equal footing. And I think he's also received, you know, several leaders from the continent, you know, to Paris, right, you know, on official state visits. Now, you know, as far as any uh, sense or perception of power imbalance and, and a patronizing flavor to it, I think that, that can, again, part of, be part of the, the perception game, especially when you have a tense environment where there already, especially is a lot of baggage 
and there's been a growing narrative that there's this neocolonial sense, then sure, I think maybe some of these governments, some of these heads of state can do more to counter that and to argue against that and to really show that you know, they're coming in with the best intentions, obviously to advance their own interests of their own governments, but also advance the interests of the governments that they're visiting and the countries that they're visiting. And I think obviously we also saw this with Secretary Blinken's visit to the continent as well. I think, you know, uh, not long ago, uh, in general, I think one important point to note is that, you know, we seem to be approaching another era where there is a level of great power competition taking place on the continent. President Macron's visit, Secretary Blinken's visit, but we are also about to see, uh, I think, uh, quite a bit of diplomacy from Russia and the U.S., because I believe both of them have their own Africa summits coming up. I believe Russia's is in maybe in a couple of months' time. The U.S. is holding its by the end of the year. China holds its China-Africa cooperation forum every three years. So it seems like, once again, you know, it's obviously not necessarily a new development, but it's entering a more visible stage, a sense of trying to compete for more influence on the continent. Russia is now leading the competition for influence in Mali. France says it withdrew all its troops from the country in mid-August. The Macron government will also reduce its entire operations in the Sahel region by half by the end of the year. This is despite Niger's offer to take in all the French forces that have left Mali. The ambassador says France wants to help Mali, but it takes two to tango. We had to leave. I think France decided to take action in, in Mali in the beginning of 2013 at the request of Mali. Mali was under attack of terrorist groups, Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb and others. And uh, it was just, you know, very close to fall in the hands of these groups. So in a way, the French intervention, uh, Serval in 2013, and then Barkhane saved the sovereignty and the independence of Mali, who otherwise would have become a new uh, success for the global jihad. Now, for different reasons, the Malian authorities believe that the French presence is no longer uh, necessary or welcome. It has become extremely difficult, if not impossible, for us to contribute to the fights against terrorism inside Mali. So the president decided to stop and to pull out. France will remain present on the ground, including with its uh, military forces. And we will uh, regroup around uh, in Niger, in Mauritania, in Burkina, and also in Senegal. And we will keep a capacity to continue the fights against terrorist groups with different modalities. Our assessment is that there are approximately 1,000 Wagner mercenaries in Mali. This is a choice of the Malian authorities. They decided to cooperate with mercenaries, even if they deny this. What's funny is that the Russians keep telling us that they uh, recognize and they acknowledge the presence of Wagner, while the Malians said that Wagner is not there. So, but anyway, Wagner is there. They are making money at the expenses of Mali. I think it's a very different business model. It's mercenaries. A uh, number of these guys are convicts or war criminals. I'm not sure Mali will get a good result out of that. Part of their mandate is probably to protect the military regime. So we hope that this uh, situation 
will change. It's for the people of Mali and for the authorities of Mali to decide on this one. But uh, it's a very worrying trend that we are witnessing now in Mali and, uh, and beyond Mali, because uh, countries that use mercenaries are uh, certainly not moving in the right direction. We'll be right back. Are you looking for a talk show featuring leading global voices? Do you want to learn more about how international issues directly affect people locally? Global Connections Television presents the insights of global influencers at no cost to viewers and programmers. GCTV is independently produced and reaches more than 70 million potential viewers worldwide each week. The show covers everything from human rights to climate change, from peace and security to empowering women and girls. It features guests such as Dr. Jane Goodall, former UN High Commissioner for Human Rights Mary Robinson, and Peter Yarrow of Peter, Paul, and Mary. The show also hosts expert voices from the private sector, academia, and labor and environmental movements. GCTV is available to public television media outlets, universities, and service clubs for distribution. To watch the show or find out more, click the link in our episode description. Now, back to the show. At the Security Council, Russia's illegal war in Ukraine is reigniting the debate about reforming the body. Many inside and outside the chamber are again asking why five nations owed near absolute power to veto resolutions concerning the entire globe. For example, Turkey says it will conclude its panel discussion on an initiative to modify the council within the framework of the General Assembly meeting later this month. And earlier this year, Liechtenstein published a resolution mandating that the P5 members explain to the General Assembly their use of the veto every time they exercise it in the Security Council. In addition, France and Mexico have long proposed a plan that prevents the use of veto power on issues around atrocities. Ambassador de Rivière says France will support any deal to reform the council, but that removing the P5's veto power is unrealistic. Well, there has been one initiative by Liechtenstein. Two resolutions have been adopted uh, earlier this year to uh, have a debate in the General Assembly each time there is a veto in the Security Council. So it has started to be implemented. Uh, I think it's interesting, but it doesn't make a big difference except having another debate, a repetition of the same arguments. More interesting, I believe, is this initiative by France and Mexico, uh, which has been there for a number of years which is a call to all UN members to support an initiative that will refrain permanent members to use their veto in case of mass atrocities. The idea is a code of conduct under which uh, the five permanent members will commit not to use the veto in case of mass atrocities, meaning the four different categories triggering action by the International Criminal Court. Pradhan does not think the French-Mexico initiative is viable. He says that what is most important now is for the council to be more representative of global realities. Certainly, I mean, ideally speaking, uh, I would love to see a reflection maybe of the 
power dynamic globally uh, as it currently exists rather than the one from you know, seven and a half decades ago, right? And I think, you know, having uh, the permanent membership, uh, you know, really be limited to and, and permanent membership and you know, the, with the veto power, you know, really be limited to a set of actors who were obviously quite relevant at the time, but not so relevant, you know, across the board and a lot of the conflict zones that we currently uh, have to deal with in the international system, you know, is outdated for sure. A body that better reflects the prevailing balance of power, I think would be, be beneficial and certainly one that has an, an equitable representation regularly, right? Not just on a rotating basis uh, would be great to see. But even there, obviously it's a challenging topic because you know once you start to open it up to regions then obviously within regions and continents, there'll be a tussle to see you know who can maybe vie for that region's permanent seat, right? And I think so that's bound to be a lot more difficult than it sometimes sounds. But I think uh, you know, structurally, again, one of the baseline things that would be good to see is if there is some way to increase the disincentives for, for using the veto, and if there's ways to try to limit its usage in certain occasions now, even though that in itself might be difficult because uh, I'm sure questions might be asked that if you restrain the veto in cases where there are atrocities and war crimes, how do you determine if it is at the level of an atrocity you know, versus something that's just short of it? So there could be more problems and questions that you create. But at the very least, you know, I think using this kind of moment to really rethink what the council is and what the council is meant to do, again, with the idea that there is quite an understandable disillusion with the council. And I can tell you the number of times, you know, I've had to tell people, both people that are UN watchers and non-UN watchers, that in fact, the council and its ability to do things is very limited, very narrow, even in the countries and conflicts where permanent members may not have a geopolitical interest, uh, what the UN can do can be quite restricted. And trying to somehow correct for that, you're really coming up with an idea for this body that is supposed to be the primary body that deals with international peace and security issues and really meets the moment that we're in, I think would be great to see. But obviously, at the point that we're in at the moment, I think just the sort of, let's say, the survival and endurance of the system as is, is in itself a goal and an objective and so far at least that's been not bad and then from there you know once you ensure that it it sustains throughout this really turbulent period then really not getting complacent and really continuing to think through these really difficult questions of what can be done to correct the course for this institution and to make it more democratic September 18th marks the 61st anniversary of former UN Secretary General Dag Hammarskjöld's plane crash which killed him and 15 other UN staffers and flight crew members. Families of some of the victims have long maintained that Security Council member states who were reportedly involved in the accident have continued to prevent a full investigation. We asked Ambassador de Riviere if any conclusion has been reached. I don't think the investigation is closed. We'll uh, look at it when it's completed. The only thing I can tell you is that uh, France is fully cooperating with the investigation. We appointed a very famous historian to deal with that. The investigators came to France. They had access to the files, to archives. So we, we will do our best to make sure that the investigation can fulfill its mandate and uh, that we, we make progress on these uh, events on these tragic events of the early 60s. But uh, we are very much in support and uh, 
we are very much cooperating with the investigation. That's it for our show. But before you go, there's one more thing. This was my last episode of Unscripted. I hope our show has helped you better understand this organization that is often dismissed, but that has never been more important, the United Nations. And I hope we've helped humanize the nameless, fameless diplomats who, no matter how high global tensions rise, keep coming back to the table. Like them, it's time for me to serve my own country, the United States, as a lawyer. Thank you for sticking with us. And please continue listening. I'm passing the torch to Kolech Kuru Ogu, who will join Damalola as co-host. Cheers. This episode was co-produced by me, Casey Candela, and Damalola Banjo for Pass Blue, an independent, women-led media site covering the United Nations and global affairs. Dulcie Leinbach is our editor. Allison Leche is our fact-checker. AI Digital created our podcast logo. And our music is by Poddington Bear. A lot happens at the UN beyond what we report in each episode of Unscripted. And Passblue is covering the important news, from women's rights to human rights, to the food insecurity caused by Russia's aggression on Ukraine. For day-to-day coverage, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And to subscribe to our newsletter, go to passblue.com. Pass Blue's in-depth and exclusive stories and this podcast are possible with the support of the Carnegie Corporation of New York, the Open Society Foundations, and our fiscal sponsor, The New School, plus listeners like you. To show your support, visit Pass Blue's website and click Donate. Unscripted is available wherever you find podcasts. If you like this show, please rate us on iTunes and share it with all your friends.